overthinking it where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. This is the Overthinking It Book Club for Saga, the comic book by Brian K. Vaughn and Fiona Staples. This is episode five, uh, the penultimate episode of the book club, and we're covering Saga issues 13, 14, and 15, or chapters, I should say, 13, 14, and 15. Uh, This is the uh, first half of the third trade paperback, if you're reading it in that format, and it's uh, nearing the end of the hardcover if you're reading it in that format. Uh, I'm Matt Rather, and uh, though Ben is here tonight, I'm going to play hosting duties uh, because Ben's Skype connection is uh, a little squirrely, but that makes him first in the alphabet, so it is my pleasure to say that for our panel for the panel, uh, the individual illustration that you think uh, encapsulates something most compelling to you about these three issues, uh, Ben, you are first in the alphabet, so Ben, welcome to your own show, The Book Club. Do you have a panel for the panel from uh, chapters 13, 14, and 15? Hello, Matt. Uh, excited to be uh, first back where I belong, the start of the alphabet. Uh, I do have a uh, panel for the panel. Uh, I think I have to go with, it's a small one. It's, I think, in chapter 15, and it's the panel where you get half of Isabel popping through the wall yelling boss with Alana, like, stifling a curse uh, as she's folding laundry. Uh, I don't know why, I just really like this 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 image here of the, the half the ghost coming through and using the term boss, which is an interesting endearment for the, the relationship that these two characters have. So it, it just appeals to me some, somehow. I always feel like when someone calls me boss uh, in the world, like, hey, boss, could you just pull your car up about 18 inches? You know, I always feel like they actually mean asshole. <laughs> I, think, I think it's very context dependent. <laughs> if you're not actually talking to your employer. But even right, then, yeah, it's kind yeah. of passive-aggressive, right? <laughs> hey, boss. <laughs> yeah, yeah. hey, uh, why, why do the writers on Overthinking It say it to me from time to time? And, and only when I'm making an unpopular decision. Uh, yeah, you, it's, just, you just answered it. <laughs> <laughs> boss. It's actually, I mean, Ben, the thing, the inter- one interesting thing about the art in this panel is that they're actually kind of mirror images of one another. Or not, not mirror images, but they're kind of a repetition of, of one another. Because Alana is has her hands up as she drops whatever bit of baby clothes she's folding, and uh, she looks at, with her mouth open, but kind of making an exclamation. There, she has the same uh, same face that uh, with the big eyes and the the wide mouth that Hazel has as she comes through. The, not Hazel, as uh, Isabel has as she comes through the uh, as she comes through the wall, right? I think that's right. Particularly the eyes; they they're very similarly illustrated here, even though elsewhere it's not like. These two characters necessarily always have the same eyes, but here they, they very much have the same quality to them. Pointy chins also. That too. Though, uh, I also like that yeah. I, this is the first time we've actually seen that Isabel can, make, can, go, can go through walls. Like She's a ghost, so presumably she can, but I think this is the first time we've seen that she has this particular ability, which Did is she, uh, you know, handy. She escaped the skeleton monster that was infested with bone bugs, I think, by, like, uh, by having it like swipe its tail through her uh, uh, incorporeal body, right? The other thing, have, that, yeah, have we noticed that, that she has a uh, Voldemort nose? Isabel has the uh, snake-like nose of, uh, <laughs> of Ray Fiennes as, as Voldemort in the Harry Potter, the Harry I, Potter I had movies. not previously noticed that, and now I will not be able to notice anything but that, so thank you for that. Good. Well, I've, I've put that in, in uh, your head. Richard Rosenbaum, you have been demoted, sir. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of... Uh... 
I'm kind of stewing with resentment about that, actually. Absolutely. You know what? The second half of the alphabet, we should declare war uh, on the first <laughs> half of the alphabet and then outsource it to people whose names begin with numbers or something, like uh, Prince <laughs> Robot the Fourth or something like that. That's a good idea. You have a panel for the panel, sir. I do. Um, it is in Chapter 14, and uh, I realized after I chose this that it's pretty similar to another panel for the panel that I chose on the previous panel. Um, and it's another one with uh, Slave Girl uh, cuddling with Lion Cat. Uh, we have this uh, this scene where uh, Slave Girl, who's now been renamed Sophie, is trying on her new name, basically. Um, she's just sitting there, you know, with Lion Cat. Uh, Lion Cat is lying in the grass. And she's kind of, you know, sitting around him. And she's like, my name is Sophie. I'm six and a half years old. I can stand on one leg for a real long time. My favorite color is blue-green, which, by the way, I noticed is the color of Lion Cat. I want to be a doctor or dancer when I'm grown up. And then she says, I'm all dirty on the inside because I did bad things with. And Lion Cat interrupts, says, lying. And then the next panel is just Sophie, you know, cuddling and smiling with Lion Cat. Which is really touching. Um, oh yeah, it got a little dusty uh, where yeah. I was when I yeah. when I was uh, reading that panel. It got a little. I don't know what it was. Just got a little dusty in the room. Something in my eye. Yeah. It, so this yeah this one panel this last panel on this page really it was really touching because I was thinking up to this point actually that we were getting like she was surprisingly well adjusted for someone who had gone through the kind of stuff that it's implied that she had gone through. Um, and only now, like only pretty recently, we start to get, uh, start to get a sense of how this has, how, you know, these experiences have kind of affected her, you know, how she feels about herself and, and what's kind of, uh, you know, what her, what her perceptions of the world are, what she thinks that things are supposed to be like. And, in this one, you know, we, we get not only she knows that Lion Cat doesn't lie about when people are lying, right? Lion Cat knows when things are true and when things are false. And, uh, and when Sophie says these things that she believes about herself because of what, has, what she's gone through, um, and very casually, Lion Cat lets her know that it is false, you know? These things aren't true. It's not It's not the case that she's all dirty on the inside because of the things that she was forced to do. And that's enough for her. She knows that Lion Cat is always right, seemingly always right, about when, when things are false. And just, you know, you watch it. Again, I think this is a, a really good... Uh, example of Fiona Staples' art brilliance, because with this one panel and the expression on Sophie's face, the expression on Lion Cat's face, we get immediately, first of all, Lion Cat is really casual about it, and Sophie is really happy to know that her 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 beliefs about herself um, are 
false are absolutely false from some you know from a from a source that she trusts um yeah it's just really it's really simple and beautiful and uh yeah just a really touching event in in this one image so the the interesting thing here i mean there's a lot of stuff about the horrors of war and about the the um uh, about the actual like act of violence the kind of the moment of violence the moment of conflict of forces opposing one another and no wonder i mean that's the stuff that's very compelling to illustrate and this is a visual medium so it's probably impossible to make an anti-war comic uh the same mm. this in the same way and with the same caveats that it's impossible to make an anti-war movie um though saga comes damn close uh, I'm sure as close as anything possibly could, but there is this also this sense, and it we get it a little bit with um, with heist uh, of the uh, this sense of the aftermath of yeah. war, right? That there is this kind of long set of consequences for everyone and for every place uh, that the war touches. It's this sort of bulldozer that rolls that rolls through, and nothing is kind of spared. It's uh, it's wrath, it's fury. Uh, so, so the people, uh, the people too. And what this kind of points at is that there is some, some sort of healing, you know, yeah. there's well, some, just, just yeah. being rescued isn't enough. Uh, right, exactly. That there's some other process that has to take place uh, beyond just uh, beyond just kind of escaping the worst of the be, be your captors and tormentors. Um, right. There's like some you got to kind of walk that back. You got to walk that experience back uh, a little bit. But it's it's one of the only things that's sort of hopeful, right? And yeah. like the kind of the hard boiled some of the hard boiled aspects of Hazel's narration, kind of scrawled over narration. Um, are are not particularly hopeful. They're they're uh, sort of world weary, or they're resigned to like uh, a certain kind of like hard boiled point of view on the world. Like, well, that's just the way dames are, you know. Uh, not exactly in that like Raymond Chandler esque uh, uh, hard boiled detective fiction thing, but that same sort of worldview that just sort of accepts that that things are that things are the way uh, that things are the way they are. Um, so so apparently, and we've also learned something metaphysical about Lion Cat here, which is that yep. Lion Cat not only uh, can tell when a person is lying, that is to say the person knows the truth or believes they know the truth and uh, is saying something other than that, but uh, can tell in some sort of cosmic sense about the ultimate meaning uh, and or the ultimate truth um, but, of things. There's one other kind of interesting metaphysical truth that we learn about Lion Cat which is in the, the panel before where she says, my name is Sophie. Mm-hmm. Lion Cat does not react with a lie, which means mm. that like whatever process that, you know, the will went through to come up with this name for Sophie, it stuck in a, in a meta- metaphysical sense. Like it, it, that is in fact her name. It's not just like a name that she's adopted. It, it is in fact her, her proper name well, now. There is another possibility, right? Is that Lion Cat is kind of like, I mean, this is an interesting thing where, like, the the truth is what Lion Cat says it is, right? Um, And so (laughs) that, like, so there's another possibility that um, 
you know, lying cat and lying cats have these kind of definitional powers in cases of ambiguity can make value judgments about what ought to be and can make that true. Right. Um, And so so it's a different kind of metaphysics uh, that is a little bit more living in a world of um, social truths as opposed to a kind of um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what. And I guess they kind of converge. But it's interesting to think about trueness and, and kind of absoluteness versus constructedness. Uh, and, and I think this scene plays with that in a really interesting way. Are you saying that Lion Cat is God? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, it's interesting. I, I, you know, I, I think uh, to be continued. Yeah. Uh, in, yeah. A, in a way, aren't we all God? In a well, way, aren't we all Lion Cat? <laughs> something, something no, happens. none of us are as cool as Lion Cat. <laughs> uh, I think something happens a little bit uh, later, which I guess we can talk about next week, um, that also complicates Lion Cat's like our ideas of lion cats powers, um, which maybe we should just put a pin in that. Yes. Yeah. Pin there. Let's remember, let's remember to talk about that. Uh, moving on. Ryan Sheely joins us. Ryan, do you have a panel for the panel? Uh, I do not have one panel for the panel. I have cheated and have two panels for the panel uh, because I think that they're very similar and they they do something similar. So the first one is in uh, chapter 13 uh, and is when the tabloid uh, reporters are uh, speaking to um, Ilana's uh, stepmom, even. Mm -hmm. And it's specifically the panel... um, in the middle of this page uh, where they are standing on her doorstep. And it's a really cool panel uh, because uh, it's one panel, um, but there's a line down the middle that looks like a panel break, but it's actually the wall, right? It's a cross section of the wall. So you have one continuous panel that is divided of space of the inside of the home and the outside of the home. Um, and then the second panel that does something really similar, uh, but also in a different way, uh, is in uh, 15, uh, when they're in... Uh, 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 when the the group in the lighthouse is playing uh, Nun Nun Tuj Nun, uh, and it's uh, once um, uh, uh, Clara and Heist uh, start to get on uh, uh, Alana about getting a job. Uh, there's the panel at the at the bottom of a page uh, that is uh, also kind of a panelless panel. There is no border to the panel. Um, and in fact, um, uh, the background is mostly a white background with a few pieces of furniture uh, and then uh, Alana and Heist uh, foregrounded. And so I think that these were both really jumped out because they both kind of play with the format of the panel and break down what a panel is um, in a way to then construct uh the home, right? Because the first panel is about uh, who can be left into the home and who can be uh, you can kind of open secrets to and become vulnerable to. Um, and the, the the second one, the later one, is about kind of going from the home out into the world. Uh, and so I think that in kind of playing with the the home of the panel and the format of that, it kind of uh, really nicely illustrates like this kind of insideness versus out outsideness. And I just thought it was a uh, really cool playing with the the comics format itself, uh, then linked to some of the themes that we're seeing in these uh, in these chapters and in the book as a whole. I mean, a lighthouse is an interesting home. 
home, right? It's an interesting kind of house because its roundness right. means it's kind of it has one wall, you know, mm-hmm. and that like uh, mm-hmm. that's an interesting characteristic. I mean, because the w- roundest wall it encloses a vol- the the roundest wall. The wall is round, it encloses a volume, and so it's not like well, the inside is the outside, and the outside is the inside, and it's all a Mobius strip. You can't go that far, but it's it's sort of like the the way it contains space is kind of never ending because you can't like if you start going around the wall, you'll just go and go and go and go forever. And if you try to go, if you try to go to the inside, right? Like it's hard to, it's sort of hard to delimit, or you could like make an argument that conceptually it's sort of hard to delimit because it's a, it's a line with no beginning and no end. Are you saying that lighthouses are God? I'm saying that, uh, (laughs) I'm saying that in a way we're all, we're all lighthouses (laughs) that we all stand up uh, tall in a, in a planet of fog. And, uh, finally mine, mine is also, uh, Sophie related. And, and finally, after I think in the, the first or second episode, I said, spoiler alert, her name is Sophie. Um, (laughs) We've finally found that out. Uh, mine is in, in issue 13. It's on, uh, uh, you know, I'm not sure the pages are, pages are super meaningful, but it's in the scene, uh, the early scene between um, uh, Gwendolyn the Will and Sophie on whatever paradise planet that they're on. Um, after, uh, after the Will and Gwendolyn have had their, their fight and uh, the Will's mad and he's, he's about to deck her, Sophie tugs on it. Sophie tugs on his cape and says, no hitting. That is one of the rules. And she's looking up in this like adorable pleading child way that's that, you know, with these puppy dog eyes and tugging on his cape. But it reminds me of the first panel when we were uh, when we were first introduced to her when she's in the sex dungeon and she's like, you know, I'm Sophie and I'm or no, I'm your I'm the slave girl. And she's doing it in a uh, this kind of pose and this angle on her is meant to um, to encode her submissive position here. She's laying down the law from this position. And it's like, no hitting. That's one of the rules. And it's about violence. It's about war. It's about mothers and fathers and children. Uh, it's about kind of order in the universe. And it's about kind of subverting the idea of, of dominance and like dominance connected to, to violence, to superior, uh, as, as uh, Starship Trooper says, uh, uh, forces violence, the one legitimate authority from which all other authorities flow, right? And subverting that uh, with authority flowing from, you know, submissive looking uh, Sophie here with her, with her puppy dog eyes looking all of 18 inches tall from the high angle that we're, we're looking at her at. And it's a nice, I mean, it's a nice kind of period on that sentence. It's a nice kind of button on that, on that arc uh, that's going to continue through to the, uh, to the panel that, that Richard brought up. When there's something just great about this, her laying down the law in this way on somebody whose name is the will. Right. <laughs> as in, as in losing mind to live. Right. <laughs> you know, I guess so she's, she's what the plea, the, the, I don't, I don't know exactly what, 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 what's going on in this panel, but it certainly subverts the will here. <laughs> the will. Yeah. The will to power. Right. Yeah, the will did not triumph in this uh, particular instance. <laughs> so, uh, great. So here, you know, we, we have talked a little bit about the aftermath, the aftermath of the violence. Uh, issue 13 actually starts in a hospital in the Lanfalian Army Medical Center um, with the establishing shot of, uh, of, an, of an old winged vet 
pushing a shopping cart outside of the the VA hospital, right? And it's you know like like a lot of things in in Saga, there's an implied contrast between the sort of institutional edifice uh, and the. Um, I mean, we didn't say that we were going to uh, make a podcast about the wire, but this is Bubbles, right? This guy on the first pan on the first page of issue thirteen is Bubbles, like pushing his shopping cart, uh, pushing his shopping cart around um and you know is completely dwarfed by the the uh, institutional edifice but somehow has a kind of life uh that it doesn't and and so inside we see a uh a um an, a soldier who had been with the artillery company on Cleve uh, that had uh initially in episode in chapter one confronted um confronted Alana and Marco, and he now doesn't have a hand. He now has a, a bandage over where his hand was either amputated or blown off, uh, you know, uh, due to the to the fight that, that they were in. Ben, you brought this, uh, this figure to our attention. What do you think the significance of this guy is as regards our heroes and the main story that we're telling? So what, I, what, I, what stood out to me is this is a, an example of a character uh, in kind of in all capital letters who must exist in, in this universe. Saga, one of the things that I think really set Saga apart is its world building, not just in the fantastical elements, but also in the sense that it feels like a very lived in world where you really can like walk up to anybody in any panel and they would have an interesting backstory. Like, uh, if, for instance, this bear waiting in the VA line. I really want to know his backstory. Um, what, yeah, me what, too. what exactly that form in his hand is, what, what, what medical care does the bear need? Uh, but, but leaving that aside, you know, that most stories don't really pause to linger on the guy whose hand the hero chopped off. Like, that's just not really a character that we're interested in seeing again. Um, and here we, we see it visibly that it's kind of ruined this guy's life and, and made everybody think he's this raving lunatic who, you know, can't even butter his own bread because he doesn't have a hand. And, you know, it was probably still justified for Marco to do this. It wasn't self-defense. But you, you realize that these people exist, these, these casualties of this war. Um, and I think throughout these three, three volumes, we meet various types of people who must exist in this world. My favorite is the insurance adjuster, because I can't <laughs> think of many other stories that bother to <laughs> introduce you to the guy who covers the when the spaceship gets, you know, a near near death. Nobody ever explained like the fact the insurance guy has to come out and like check out the damage. Yeah, it's uh, I mean, you know, with his uh, insurance adjusting iPad. Um, (laughs) Also, there's a mouse uh, flying. There's a mouse flying through the hospital hallways. Is it just that all that that uh, mice are the the doctor class in this that like only mice go to medical (laughs) school or something in the in the saga universe? I think the mouse is pooping. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I it feels like I'm the mouse says. <laughs> I think it's just a I think it's just a mouse. I think it's like everything on this world evolved with wings. That's how I interpret it. So like Same. this is just a rodent, but on this world the rodents have wings too. And I just want to point out that this this issue came out uh what, a year ago, 18 months ago, something like that, some significant amount of time ago. And uh this this soldier, this Lanfalian soldier has a very chic side shave going on with the long kind of forelock and the, you know, and the really close cropped hair. Uh, you know, we don't know about regulation. Uh, we don't know about grooming standards in the Lanfalian military, but, um, uh, but whatever they are, they must be fabulous. If this guy's, uh, if this guy's haircut passes muster. 
don't you think? Yeah, or maybe maybe Marco also, when cutting off his hand, also managed to give him an undercut uh, as well. <laughs> um, I want to just though, address like the uh, as much as I'd love to keep making riffs on haircuts uh, and uh, and 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 these parallels. Um, I I, I want to kind of address this idea of like these characters that must exist. And I think another way of of saying this is that. Um, it's a really cool thing in this uh, in this world and in this story that um, characters do- characters and places don't stop existing uh, as soon as they're kind of uh, not in the panel. Or you know, I almost want to say this like off stage or or off the screen. But when the when the focus shifts away from them, it's not then then it disappears. But it imagines kind of these things keep playing out. And so going back to someone who is in one of these places and seeing those consequences means that you know that this is a vast interconnected world and even and and again i mean you mentioned and i think that this is why you know i i think that the parallels with the wire are apt because ultimately i mean it's interesting they're both uh, um we could go more into some comparisons uh, similarities and differences but uh just in the similarities there is the idea that all the pieces matter uh and they may not matter all the same uh here right there are something that feels more like you know, protagonist or more like a hero, and there is a a voiceover that you uh, never uh, would have gotten in The Wire. But this idea of uh, at least lingering on very small characters and even them coming back or them being connected to someone else feels like this is a world that is that is kind of there is a a web of relationships uh, that people are getting sucked into and and are a part of and are trying to survive in. Yeah, I mean it's it's interesting. It's like it's a trope of this sort of. I actually don't know if I mean trope. Uh, it is a common feature, and that that's by the way, literary critically, that's different from trope. And and I don't know if it's just TV tropes that has us all saying. It that way but it's a common feature of of this, this kind of story from a certain era by which i mean war stories um that uh you know that minor characters uh rail against the war and you know the kind of damage that it does to the common people and how how the the people who are controlling the war and waging the war don't understand right and and it seems like every uh, it seems like every minor character on a minor planet that we meet is talking about how the the wings or the horns like swept through and and then you know the rest of us were left to mop up and my planet was once a paradise and now it's uh you know uh now it's being picked over by the by the sex traffickers of sextillion or or something like that um and and i i I sometimes wonder in stories like this whether it it weakens the believability of the story at all. And what I mean by that is, like, mm. c- certainly the powers that be must know that everybody is grumbling, right? Like, they're not delusional, uh, unless they're all delusional in, in all of these stories, right? That no one is actually into the war. No, Like, no one actually believes in anything, Um but that that they're talking about, and even when Gwendolyn starts talking about whatever the kind of the the Mooney mumbo jumbo is about the great narrative, um, and how how Marco has sullied the great narrative, uh, I think it's the Will who says you you can't even believe believe that right? Like you're you're that's all propaganda. But it seems like the propaganda. No, who is the propaganda for? Because the people, you know, if the the people behind the war don't believe it, and the people who are fighting the war, and the people who are victims 
comes to the war don't believe it like where does the illusion come from or is it all in the game i mean the king stay the king right or the queen stay the queen right and uh and the pawn stay the pawn uh or the king stay the king right and uh if the pawn can get queen that's one lucky ass pawn right <laughs> well this guy i mean is accusing alana of being a traitor he seems to be pretty you know on the side that he's on it's true yeah he's not the best example of what i'm talking about but i'm thinking of minor characters who seem to have a life and have opinions that are sort of skew to the skew to the main line of the plot yeah well i mean to the extent that to the extent that this is a uh, a war story it's not really about the war right like we we talked about this a little bit before it's more about the uh the results of war right the so it's important that we have these persisting characters um because you know they they can't just be cannon fodder because the the whole point of of the story is the uh the consequences of the big flashy fights right yeah but but at the same time uh it's also about the consequences of sex right we get a lot of parallel uh, consequences of sex being resulting in things that you don't usually see in comics or in anything, um, and very graphically too. And uh, are you saying that all sex is war? I I might be in in a way. In a way. That's the war of the sex. I mean, isn't everything war in in a way? In a a way. Um, Isn't war... Are you saying that war is God? (laughs) (laughs) Are you saying that war is sex continued by other means? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Dr. Ruth von Clausewitz. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Ben, we don't want to let you uh, leave this topic before you you have a chance to say the the parting word uh, on it. Uh, Any other uh, tangential characters that that you like or any other thoughts about the meaning of the the tangential characters ultimately? Well, just point out that I I think what had brought this first to my attention is that the beginning of each one of these uh, chapters is kind of we're meeting one of these people. Like we meet the guy whose hand was chopped off. We meet... Uh, you know, Alana's former commanding officer, who must have been a person, and we meet Alana's uh, mother, who certainly doesn't seem to have as important a role in the story as Marco's parents. Stepmother. Well, I mean, step, you know, yeah, exactly. Like camp, camp or like high school classmates slash stepmother. Yeah. Right. Um, and, but I just like that, you know, through the eyes of these reporters, we're meeting kind of all of these people around the edges of this story. Because if somebody were trying to find out this story, like these are the people they would talk to to try to get at the people at the middle of it. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. It gets to a kind of a, a, a documentary or a, a sort of a sociological uh, or a journalistic method. And I guess it's it's fitting that there are two tabloid journalists. And, and, and I'm given to understand, like, just from the way they're talking and the fact that they know the real story and no one else seems to, that we're supposed to think that these tabloid journalists are actually worth, uh, you know, worth 20 um quote-unquote real journalists right like these these national Enquirer reporters are worth 20 new york times columnists not columnists reporters uh but um 
But yeah, I mean, it's an interesting, it's an interesting technique, right? Like, because it does, it sort of subverts the main narrative, but it also serves to sort of undergird the main narrative because these are all people who are related to our heroes, right? Uh, in the same way, I mean, the, the, every volume of Game of Thrones begins with a point of view introduction chapter that is not one of the main point of view characters, uh, right? And is just, um, you know, another as is kind of a one-off, a one-off aspect, uh, a one-off story. Though, though, we also meet the reporters here who are not one-offs who uh, who end up, you know, being people that we follow uh, later on into the the section that we are talking about, uh, including, yeah. It just in a strange way, these little opening riffs remind me of the uh, the opening couple minutes of every episode of Law and Order. Where you always get like a little snippet of somebody's like daily life where they're like arguing with their girlfriend or something like that as they're walking into their apartment. And then, hey, wait a second. What's that in the bushes? And then they find the dead body. And it's they, a body and with, with a hand with his hand cut off because he was in a war on a <laughs> tiny planet called exactly. Cleve. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Look. I just want to. I want to jump in with something else here. I mean, I, I like realizing that all three of these chapters start uh, with uh, these uh, these tabloid journalists interviewing someone. Let me to go back to the, their introduction and the first shot where we see them, or the first shot, uh, the first uh, page, the full page where we see them on uh, in chapter thirteen. Uh, it's really interesting to see the camera, and there, there's an eye in the camera, uh-huh. um, and I found that really uh, interesting. Thinking about to even some of what I was trying to say earlier about this. Idea idea, and, and this connects to what you were saying, I think, Matt, about the documentary quality of the idea of there being a camera eye here, right? And and that the, there is almost a drawing attention to, um, we're going to focus you on uh, on one part of the story. And it's interesting because, uh, actually, the next page after that, um, Hazel's narration comes uh, in and says, right, where were we? And so there's almost these, like, almost competing storytelling there's a, the, like so that most of the story is that hazel is telling you the saga but then like when with the introduction of these characters there's another um there's another storyteller or a storytelling force uh coming here and so you kind of get the um these these two forces of the almost you know oral history of of self and of family uh that is in the narration and then this more documentary style um that is you know and it's not just the camera eye right it's the image and the words right so it's you again have your your writer and your artist uh and and it's there's a bit of a, almost a comics storytelling that are then uh over these three chapters kind of um, interplaying with each other and almost having this battle over how to tell the story. You know, if Jordan uh, Stokes were here tonight, he would bring us back to Zika Vertov and Kino Eye yep. uh, and the idea of Kino Pravda, film truth, uh, yeah. and the, the sort of early 20th century idea that that the filmed image was a kind of, was a sort of lying cat, right? Like the, <laughs> that the eye of the camera was able to uh, determine truth or falsity uh, in a way that was a lot more reliable than other forms and this this was sort of pre uh well Photoshop. Sort of, yeah well i mean i was about to say pre-fascism though not really right mm-hmm. because we're after the the bolshevik revolution at this point and uh you know it we we um are sort of heading into totalitarianism on on the scale that uh that the 20th century begins to see it and right like so already and actually already in the the theories of montauk 
montage and how how the meaning of the the moving image could be changed by editing there was the like the idea of subjectivity or the idea of agency and intentionality of the filmmaker had been introduced into the theoretical conversation but there is this like there is this it's it's still it's very like um uh symbolically powerful even if you know even if it's th- maybe doesn't stand up to a, a theoretical analysis of like the eye that the eye that sees and the eye that documents right like uh the difference between a document and uh and a narrative is an mm-hmm. interesting right mm-hmm. like is an interesting kind of uh uh, uh on the one hand x comparison <laughs> god i used to speak english fluently then i started reading comic books <laughs> it's, it's interesting like, now you only speak about... esperanto <laughs> right it is interesting just talking about um you know, film and uh, film and and fascism. Right? I I made an offhand joke about Triumph of the Will earlier, but it, that, that kind of brings it together, right? And the other piece, uh, you know, between document and narrative is propaganda, right? And um, we haven't seen a lot of propaganda here, but it's it's reference, right? Propaganda is reference, and it's it's there. Uh, and in, in, in at least sides of what's going on here. So it's kind of how storytelling interacts with war or another way that storytelling interacts with war. Yeah, I mean, it's I mean, to the to the point I was attempting at least to make earlier about who actually believes the the justification for this war. There is this sense of like propaganda being this performance that we all have to do, you yes. know, that like uh, that it's incumbent on us to sort of uh, in the way that like certain kinds of religious rituals can become yeah. hollow of of meaning but are still kind of important symbolically or important as a like as a performance uh, are culturally important and that the that the idea of of propaganda being like you know believing believing in the war is one thing that we all continue to pretend to do right right is <laughs> right. like and that's what binds us you know that's what binds us together it's actually there there's a great book on this uh by um a political scientist named lisa wedeen called ambiguities of domination that exactly makes this argument um about uh, Syria about a, 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 a one regime ago in Syria and looking at uh, rituals of kind of big, these big kind of public shows uh, even though and, and points out that and explores through an ethnography of why people continue to participate in these things even though no one believes in them and it's exactly a similar argument about this role of ritual and and kind of um, and kind of a, a cultural forms of power so it's it's definitely there and kind of fitting with some of these social science studies of um of of domination and uh, in that case uh, authoritarianism so uh one, to a certain oh yeah one interesting detail i hadn't previously noticed the eye in the in the camera and one interesting detail i'm noticing because that there is this idea of the camera as being like an objective arbiter of truth there's actually an interesting genre of like late 18 late 19th century early 20th century dramas when when photography was still relatively new where a camera will kind of miraculously take a picture that proves that the villain did the crime and framed the hero. And it will, this will be like the, the, the Perry Mason moment is this photograph comes out in court and, and reveals the truth of, of some disputed matter. Yeah. Um, but here you get very much the opposite because we have the, this eye in the camera making it a living thing. And I hadn't noticed that, and I was looking at the, at the first shot we get of it, the eye is just kind of pointing. It's just kind of looking at whatever it's looking at. But later, when they're being fired at by the sniper, you see the eye completely covering the lens, like bul- almost bulging out of the camera. So it's, 
it's as if the camera is a living thing reacting to the danger of the situation, which shows that this camera at least is extremely subjective. It's reacting to the situation. And one gets the sense that if he takes a picture at that time, it's going to be a different picture than if the camera were calmed down in the situation. I mean, in, in, in a way, it's a sort of gloss on tabloid journalism where the, where the image is sort of manipulated to be sensational, right? And like, wouldn't it, be, wouldn't it be nice if there were a camera that could just imbue the photographs it took with the mood that you want, like with the slant or the sensational uh, you know, aspect that you want your story to have, uh, whatever your, your pictures of, of uh, branch Angelina or or what have you are you could kind of just give them any any sort of mood or any sort of uh, uh, spin that would yeah, well, awesome. Instagram filters. Sent- yeah, exactly. It's exactly. I was going to say sentient Instagram was exactly. Yeah. What it was. <laughs> um, so another kind of ritual, uh, another kind of uh, performance that, that we do together that is sort of socially important uh, is game playing, uh, and we play a board game in in uh, section uh, or in chapter fifteen. And heist uh, heist says somewhat controversially, I think there are only three forms of high art: the symphony, the illustrated children's book, and the board game. Uh, and Nuntuj Nun, or Nuntuj Nun, or I'm not sure how to pronounce it. I'm not sure if this is actually uh, Esperanto. Um, but uh, loosely translated, Now Means Now is quite literally the greatest board game in the universe. Now, we know that there is a, uh, there's a, a drawing section. We know that there is a wrestling section. And we know that there is a, uh, a fake-out uh, section. There's a, like a mind game section. Um, I don't know. What do, what do we to make of the board game uh ryan you brought this to our to our attention did you uh did you want to get this for your next game night uh, yeah i did uh, i think uh you know it's just it's you know, uh cards against humanity has just gotten a little too basic for me uh so i, I think i think i need noon to, uh, noon um i think i what i really liked about it uh especially was the psych out round um and in part because uh uh and and Matt you may remember this that uh when we would uh, go bowling uh with the group of people who eventually became uh most of overthinking it uh in college we would do a thing called psych out bowling which while <laughs> someone was about to bowl you would say things to them to try to distract them and and gutter ball or or perform poorly uh and what's really interesting though about this is that it was still, you know, you would know what you would start doing the psyching out when the person stepped up to the lane. Uh, and then it's like, all right, their turn is about to start. And now is when the psych out begins. Uh, and what I really love about the psych out run uh, round uh, here is that uh, what uh, it seems to be the organic discussion um, about the uh, about uh, Alana going to back into the workforce versus staying at home is uh is also in fact uh is revealed at the end uh to have been uh part of the gameplay right and this idea of you think it uh actually yeah so you 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 like of thinking well the way that you play a game is that there are rounds and there are steps and there are getting actually back to um Sophie and the will there are rules um and that uh, what you what you see is when um, Heist and Clara uh, at the end after Alana runs out with Marco chasing her and they say to each other "Nun tuj nun." I mean that's basically there. It's all in the game, right? Uh, and because I mean, right, what they say the translation is is now is now, um, and which is, feels like a very like 
kind of uh, relates to some ideas in like, you know, uh, in mindfulness and Buddhism, right, about about being kind of in a present moment. Uh, and it, it strikes me that, you know, that that indicates that that the kind of game that it is indicating and what makes it kind of the best game in the universe is that it's all game. Right. Uh, and, and and that it's not um, that that I you see things that start to incorporate elements of the of, of the of artistic expression of um, of uh, right in the drawing round and the visual round uh, of elements of, of physical strength and actual use of bodies and of of actual psychology and and uh, manipulation and so that it is not only a game that is kind of a, a metaphor and a kind of a con- condensation of reality uh, but it is so much so that it kind of the blurring between playing and not playing the game. Uh, uh, itself it blurs, which is that thus a comment on reality, right? And so I, I thought that was that that kind of game and that, that imagination of a kind of game uh, is is very cool. And again, I think speaks to some of the the ways that we're kind of thinking about the world and the, and the again not the world building in terms of of population, but the meta world building. What kind of a world is this, or what kind of a uh, how do the kind of the ontological world building, right? How do the authors and creators think the world works? Uh, and and so that kind of it being o- that always onness that's depicted in the game I, I seemed really interesting to me. Yeah. So we're we're obligated at this point to talk about Ender's Game since that is how the Overthinking uh. Book Club began uh, with uh, me and Matt talking about Ender's Game. And I remember there was a lot of times where we were discussing games and rules and game playing. And I think there is something to this idea of there being you know the rules of none touch none presumably don't say anything about you know, inciting family squabble to, you know, psych out your opponents, but that's still part of the game. Like there, there is, there's the, the board game, which is the one that's according to the rules. And then there's the game that actually played yeah. yep. in the same sense that like, there's nothing in the rules of poker about bluffing. Like if you sit down and read the rules of poker, all it says is you get this mm-hmm. many cards at this times and you can make bets at this many times. And yet that's not really what the game is about. The game is about the psychology of it, the lying, the bluffing, the, the calling, all that things that is kind of the not even the metagame. It's just what's done as part of the game. And it, it becomes you know, much more important than what's in the rules and then moving around the pieces. Yeah, well, it's interesting. It's that it is that it's strategy. Right. I mean, and, and I think about that in both like how you know, players of board games would think about that, but also in the, in kind of game theory, it is, you know, strategies are these kinds of the stable choices of players. But then there are also, I think what's interesting is that it it seems like the fact that like both Clara and Heist knew what's going on. It's not just that it was just Clara's strategy is that they, as people who had played this game and understood this game, there was a shared strategy. There's an understanding, kind of a cultural understanding of this is how you play, right? So that it's kind of, different from rules uh, that is a kind of, you know, what could be called like a, a norm, a descriptive norm of this is what people do uh, when playing this game, or this is a way to play this game. Uh, and, and they kind of had that, even though they had just met each other, um, having played the game, they, they kind of knew what kind of a situation they were in and how to play it. I mean, it's uh, interesting. Is there but, like, what, uh, sorry, you, you go Ben cause I'm going to jump in and, that, and pull. <laughs> I think there is something to that because it, it, it's in a similar sense to something like hockey, that like fighting in hockey. Yeah. It's not more legal to punch somebody in the face in hockey than it is in chess. 
But I guarantee if you do it when you're playing hockey, the result will be very different than if you play it in a, in a world chess match. Huh. Like there's a norm that's grown up around hockey that allows certain things like you're allowed to engage in a certain amount of like extra legal violence. Well, there are kind of specific just, there are specific penalties for fighting, but it's right. it's almost Look, like it's deliberately it's deliberately against a certain rule. And, and, and the, everyone knows that the result what the result is going to be if you if you uh if you're within the kind of understood limits of which which is another way of saying that there's a price right as soon as you add a penalty to something it's you're now basically allowing that thing provided you are willing to pay the price yes right exactly there's no there's no penalty for punching gary kasparov in the face Right. There's no you don't know uh, what's going to happen to you if you do it in in a chess match. Uh, And like once uh, once you're legislating about something, you're envisioning that that kind of behavior is, uh, uh, you know what I mean, is going to be uh, that there's at least going to be a certain amount enough of it that it makes it worth legislating about it rather than taking it on a on a case by case basis. So at that point, it's no longer really egregious. It's part of the kind of the envisioned range of behaviors that this uh, particular enactment kind of uh, uh, will will countenance, right? Right, because you do know what happens if you punch Gary Kasparov in the face during a chess match. Yeah, you go to jail. arrested and tried for assault. Right, right, and so it's not, right, exactly. So you have to look at, like, it's like games and games and games. It's a Russian nesting doll Mm -hmm. of games Mm -hmm. and that, like, you you ideally, you want to pitch your actions, you want to pitch your strategy so that uh, you're engaging with consequences on the same level as the rules of the game, right? Like, if you punch Gary Kasparov in the face, a still greater game's rules are going to start to right right, are going to start to apply to you and that is at a at a certain level that's a failure to play the game correctly i mean i don't know maybe it's just a success at playing the game much more awesomely Uh, you you could be playing chess boxing chess boxing we could be playing that in which case you're you're doing really well um i wonder i wonder if there are penalties in chess boxing for punching when you're supposed to be playing chess or vice versa (laughs) <laughs> I mean, so uh, this is interesting. I never took game theory in college, and I'm curious if there is a uh, like a technical game theoretical definition of what a game is and and what it hinges on, whether it has to do with being turn based or whether it has to do with certain kinds of choices and like admitting of like a branching model like a decision tree kind of uh uh kind of view does anyone remember their uh their college game theory no i guess not Uh, well (laughs) i mean uh so i think it's interesting i mean uh, I'm I'm uh, going to talk as I also uh, yeah I'm, I'm Wikipediaing right now. Well, but no, but but I think that um, it's it's interesting, right? So that there is, I mean, part of how I was thinking about game theory was from um, a like subset of game theory and of rational choice game theory uh, that is the institutional turn uh, that that was pioneered by Eleanor Ostrom, who I, I talk a lot about, and so Ostrom doesn't like broadens out. Um, I mean, basically beyond the definition of game uh, that she uses is kind of strategic interactions between uh, individuals. So when you have individuals interacting, um, 
like that is so and, and so she kind of even like speaks more broadly than than games um the terms she uses are and it's it's it gets very jargony and annoying uh are are action situations um but it's it's a kind of a discrete interaction uh between individuals um and so and and she she kind of moves away from uh game theory because there are some types of interactions uh that uh, have a level of complexity either in the number of turns or the number of players uh or the overall structure that can't be um, modeled using the the tools uh, that are used in rational choice game theory uh, and kind of uh, and then the the solution concepts of finding uh, equilibria uh, uh, equilibrium strategies uh, but that still the idea of thinking about um, strategic interactions that have a a structure that can be characterized is useful even beyond that um, and so that that's kind of the way to to at the broadest level to think of of um, and so so a game is a little more narrow uh and, and but I'm, I'm kind of grasping of um and i would need to look again at how game i mean is, is it that maybe it's the instrumentality of the decision making right uh but I mean, when when is decision making not instrumental to some? I mean, uh, the 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 larger point I'm trying to make is about the Russian Russian nesting doll of games. Like, what what isn't a game looked at in a certain light, right? Like, the will is engaged in a game that's called vengeance, right? Yeah. And the uh, uh, Prince Robot is in, engaged in a game that's called like Get Back Home by you know like Obligation or something like that. That's yeah. you know, and uh, and uh, Marco and Alana. Are, are engaged in a game that's called like escape or you know on the run or fugitives or something like that right and so th- well, that is uh, that's actually uh, precisely like ostrom's point is that like existence like human social life is a series of like interconnected and context dependent games that are like linked to each other and also like very uh based on on context so like kind of at different times different games are activated um and are linked to one another both in kind of an an adjacent way but also in a uh, russian nesting doll kind of way so that's exactly kind of the way so that yeah you have to imagine um, you have to imagine theory game theory only looks at single games but kind of these these kinds of um either like broader kind of inst- either institutional or more evolutionary game theory kind of allows for games or within games and allows for um, kind of connections between uh, games. And as she has a little bit of a preview, there's likely to be uh, coming uh, pretty soon on uh, overthinking it a um, guest article that actually looks uh, at this and this idea of meta games in the world of uh, particularly of Game of Thrones. Um, and so look for that on the site if this uh, discussion, these discussions of game theory are interesting to you because the, the it's actually this idea of, you know, I mean, game theory is well and good and sometimes as a metaphor or as a tool for, like, understanding behavior in a given uh, situation. But for these larger worlds, um, you kind of move to kind of you, – you kind of have to move outside of the game and, and, and to move to these more meta theories, um, which is ultimately a land of kind of institutions uh, and, and institutional analysis. Uh, well, right, and, and social norms and, norm, and interpretive norms, hermeneutic norms, which is the yeah. thing that I wanted to – yeah. I wanted to sort of bring up, right? Like the way that 
that game engages with narrative is in an idea of genre, right? And so if one way of saying it is what game are we playing, right? Like, are we playing the game of detective story? Are we playing the game of war story? Are we playing the game of, of you know, Game of Thrones story? You know, are we playing the game of like subversive uh, epic fantasy series? You know what I mean? Like that uh, talking about genre is one way of talking about like what kind of what is the range of behaviors that we're going to countenance uh, in this particular enactment or in this particular representation of a set of enactments uh, that that goes into a narrative. And the interesting moments and the interesting moments in Saga come when someone or the reader thinks that they're in one kind of story and in fact they're in a different kind of story. You mean you think it's one way and it's the other way? <laughs> I guess it's I guess it's a law on overthinking it that all podcasts become podcasts about the wire. But yeah, <laughs> it's the like, wire is the meta game. Like <laughs> it's all it's all, it's all in the meta game. <laughs> Uh, right. Well, the will, right. The will thinks he's in the, uh, like, and it happens at the end of 15, right? Like, and, and, uh, what a fitting way to end with the cliffhanger of, uh, of chapter 15, but the will thinks he's in, um, uh, in one game called like, you know, uh, a failure at escaping or like, you know, back to vengeance or like my miserable life or something like this. Um, like, uh, I'm a badass, uh, freelancer and, uh, turns out he's in a different game called like uh horror movie. So- Sophie with, uh, Bloodstained lips is going to stab me in the stab me in the face, right? Like making very good use of the uh, making very good use of the uh, of the page turn to reveal her there in the shadow in a very you know in a very slasher movie sort of panel, a really you know a really good composition, and another one where this the there's a kind of mirroring um, between the Will and Sophie in the uh, uh, antepenultimate uh, page of chapter 15. Um, and, you know, uh, he's going to, and also revealing then in the ultimate page, in the ultimate page, in the, the final panel, that uh, the stalk is there for Sophie as well, and that she is a, a hallucination. And we've learned at this point that, that the hallucination is produced by some agency on the planet that uh, causes people to want to remain into the eco, uh, causes people to want to remain in the ecosystem uh, and not to, uh, not to flee. And there's the will lying dead, bleeding. But we, we have seen dead bleeding characters before, so we are not daunted. We are not daunted indeed. We'll be back with more uh, book club for Saga next week. We're going to be covering, it's going to be our final um, our final Saga book club. We are ending at the third trade paperback or at the end of the hardcover edition of Saga with our episode six. It will cover chapters 16, 17, and 18. Uh, if you would like to join in the conversation on this stretch or anything that we've said in this episode, uh, join us in the Overthinking It forums. There is a special forum, and you'll find a link in the show notes. Uh, there's a special forum for just this uh, this book club, and there will be a thread open that you can uh, look at for talking about uh talking about just uh, 13 14 and 15 i think it's also high time for people who have read saga that we open the all spoilers for all chapters thread of uh of the forum so i'll make sure to do that this week as well uh thank you very much to the panel ben adams richard rosenbaum ryan Sheely, and i'm matt rather we'll be back next week until then visit us for more on the web at overthinking it where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably, it probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. deserve.